Welcome to the Crowdmakers, inside the C-suite of sports and entertainment, the definitive podcast on the inner workings of the business side of professional sports, concerts, and live events. These are the people that are shaping the new landscape of the industry, the executives that are creating the new paradigm for live entertainment. These are the inside conversations you won't hear anywhere else. These are the Crowdmakers. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the digital training network that uses micro-learning and spaced repetition to form new habits of success in sales, service, leadership, and more. Created by sports and entertainment industry experts for the industry. Learn more at ISBI360.com. And now, here's your host for the Crowdmakers, Bill Gertine. Welcome to the Crowdmakers. Once again, I am Bill Gertine, and with me today is a very special guest. She's an artist, a musician, and a fantastic person all around, Eva Gardner. Here, welcome to the Crowdmakers. Hi, thank you so much for having me and for the lovely introduction. Absolutely. All the way from Los Angeles, we appreciate you being here. And uh, as a musician, we in the business of sports and entertainment don't often get your viewpoint on how things have been over the past year and how you see things coming in the future. So we're really grateful to have your insight because you have had quite a resume. You're an in-demand bass player. You're a studio session player. You've done hundreds of live shows alongside some of the biggest stars in the music industry, including Gwen Stefani, Pink, Cher, Tegan and Sarah, Tim Burgess, and the list goes on and on. In fact, you've even written some things yourself, which has been fun during the pandemic, I know. So let's talk a little bit about that day in March, that mid-March day, wherever you happen to be when you first learned things were going to be shut down. Where were you at that moment? Take us through that situation. I was, uh, earlier that year, I, I had been in the process of planning the year ahead, as we usually do. I had just finished a tour with Pink two and a half years on the road. Mm. So mapping out the next year, um, which included, um, sh you know, shows and rehearsals and some speaking engagements and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, and um, that just all went upside down, of course. Uh, in March. <laughs> was there a, a moment that you recall that you'd kind of thought, okay, things are not going to be good going forward? Yeah. Well, my, my family owns a restaurant here in LA mm. and the day we had to close was the day that I really realized like, okay, this is, this is happening. Um, and this year is going to be look, looking a lot different than anticipated. Yeah. And of course we all found that out. So as you went through this past year and you saw so many others who started shutting down, what did you learn about the business of music during this whole 12-month period? Um, the business of music, uh, I mean, that was the thing that, one of the things that really got hit hard, uh, got hit hard the most, right? I mean, what we do is gather in crowds. <laughs> Um, and that is the thing that we cannot absolutely do right now. So, um, so all that just went to the wayside and it also became apparent that, um, in a way music, um, is seen as a, a luxury a bit, right? Mm. Like it's one of those things that is not essential quote unquote, um, in the eyes of, of some people. And, uh, 
you know, whereas the restaurant, our family, our restaurant could go back to work and we could open up at some limited capacity and we are considered, considered essential workers there uh, in the food industry. But none of the, the shows that I had booked, none of the engagements that I had planned, none of that came back. And um, as some of the things are trying to come back this year, festivals, things like that, um, there's really we still don't know if they're actually going to happen. They're putting yeah. them on the books. They're, they're putting dates out there just to have something, but whether they will happen or not is remains uh, to be seen. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's a gazillion dollar business, but when it came to that, it, um, it, it, it went to the wayside, right? It's yeah. like the, the arts are one of those things where they're so, um, um omnipresent in people's lives you know it's like uh but strangely enough it's like the first thing that that goes with if, if budgeting is uh, funding is cut for schools the first thing that it's cut from is the arts program so that was an apparent situation last year i mean that was just an, 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 i mean so what did you do tell us about you know what from march 2020 on what have you occupied yourself with so i have continued to occupy myself with music but in a studio setting, in a home setting, in a closed setting. And I know that that's what a lot of people have done. Um, so I took to writing music to, uh, I have an EP coming out. So I have a, an album that I've, that I worked on. And I also took to furthering my education with music production. I went back to school and just really delve into the technical side of things, the production side of things, engineering, um, all that stuff. So I just really shifted my perception and saw last year as an opportunity right cool. so you can't control the circumstances you can only control your reaction to them right so right. i really took that to heart and um decided to make an opportunity create an opportunity create my own work for myself excellent so i'm going to plug you early because i want people to be able to tune in and, and look at some of the work and listen to some of the work you have where can they find it well if they're happen to listen in right now and say boy i'd like to hear what eva's done if you have spotify or apple music amazon you can just type in my name eva gardner eva um eva not eva <laughs> <laughs> you might get something else if you type Ava. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's there's often confusion there, but it's Eva, EVA. Well, speaking of namesakes, your dad was a well-known bass player. He was part of the British invasion of the 60s and 70s. He used to jam with Jimi Hendrix and a lot of icons. In fact, you probably bounced on Jimmy's knee or something at that time. I don't know exactly how that might have worked at that time. What, what do you remember about meeting some of those players that your dad surrounded himself with at that time? When I was a kid, I could never appreciate uh, the gravity of who a lot of these players were because I was just a kid and these were all just my dad's wacky friends and they were all having a, a good old time. And so it wasn't until later that I was like, oh my gosh, that was Mick Taylor from that was in the Rolling Stones playing guitar in our living room growing up. Wow. Things like that. And I remember my dad was very close with John Entwistle from The Who. Mm. Um, they came up together playing shows together as teenagers. So he was a fixture in my young life as well. And, um, and, uh, when I was starting to play bass, he was one of the ones that actually like was a supportive force and, and, um, and, but again, I, I wasn't until later that I was like, oh my God, this is, I, not only were those moments so important to me as a musician and having that encouragement, but the people that were there, um, cheering me on, um, was pretty special. 
Yeah, having John Entwistle on the sidelines cheering up for you is a, a pretty darn special thing indeed, and many others like that. Well, you went on to school. You went to the L.A. High School for the Arts, uh, wanted to be a bass player, but you had a bit of a disadvantage because, truth be told, as I understand it, you chose not to put a lot of effort into learning to read music before you got there. How did you overcome that? Yeah, early on, I just had this perspective of what my dad and his friends went through in the 60s and 70s, and Jimi Hendrix didn't learn how to read music, and that I did. My dad never learned how to read music, and I just kind of, I just had that idea of, I just played by ear, and I just, I just wanted to rock, you know, like I didn't care about all the other stuff, and when I decided to shift that into a, a scholastic setting and go to school, um, and I auditioned for the school because you have to want to be there. And when they asked me the, the questions of whether I was learning how to read music and if I could read the notes on, on the board, my answer was no. Hmm. And that wasn't the correct answer for them. So I didn't get in. I failed my audition. And so that was one of those light bulb moments. And I realized that, oh, if I want to bend the rules, I have to learn them first. So it was at that point that I wanted to turn that no into a yes. And I had my parents get me a teacher, a bass teacher, and I started learning the rules. I um, put my nose to the grind and, uh, and I really I wanted to get in. So I auditioned again. And this time I, when they asked if I was learning how to read and if I had a teacher, my answer was yes. And as a result, I got a yes from them as well. And I got in. Very resilient of you. And that must have been difficult to have to go back and start from scratch. And, and it probably has served you well now in the resilience factor, just to be able to get through things that we've been through through 2020 and 21. So congratulations. That's a, a great accomplishment um, on top of all the other accomplishments you've had. So when you graduated, you had a lot of offers to play, a lot of other bands wanted to have you there, but you then you graduate from college, you get on the first tour with a band called the Mars Volta, those who don't know the Mars Volta, it was a band that was just starting out at that time. How would you describe their music? And, and what was the appeal to that group to start your touring career? Yeah, the music style, I guess it would be considered um, like progressive rock, you know, in the rock vein. And I had, um, they had already had a band prior to the Mars Volta. They were in a band called, two of the guys called At The Drive-In who were already um, established. And, um, and so when I joined with them, it was great to be joining people that already had experience in the things that I wanted to, to do, which is tour and record and all that stuff. And, um, and, and they were also, we became very fast friends and I had a, I was a friend, a, a friend who had recruited me to be in the band. So, um, and so when I got into that situation, it was what, it was funny because I had just, I was in school, right? I was in college and I was like learning all the rules. And then coming out of that and writing music with these guys, I kind of threw those rules out again because I was just playing from the heart and creating from the heart and wasn't thinking about chord structures and any of the, the stuff that comes with this, the conservatorial approach. And so it was just a really wonderful um experience for me. I'm very creative and, and just exactly where I needed to be at that moment. And the opportunity to, to record and go on the road was, was what I, it's what I wanted. It was my That's dream. Great. Well, and you co-created that music with them. So in essence, what you did is you went back to the fundamentals to go through school and then you almost relearned the whole art of improvisation and, and being in the moment. Then when you went on tour, would that be accurate? Yeah, it was, it was just taking all the, taking all of it. 
and, and mixing it all up together and just, just seeing what sticks. And, um, but I was glad that I did have the fundamentals, you know, there's, there's part of that, but it was like, okay, cool. So I did that. Now let's get back to why I'm doing this, which is yeah. like to express, express from the heart. Right. And, and become, um, become like an antenna. But you know, you, what you're out. saying really is a very basic business tenet that you have to be rooted in the fundamentals in order for it to you, for you to expand perhaps beyond where you are right now. And it sounds like that's what you were able to do. Gotcha. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So networking is another of those things that business people in general have been very, very good at. And I'm sure you've had some of that going on in your career as a small business person yourself, an entrepreneur. How can you describe your networking style? And has there been a certain pivotal moment where good networking has really paid off for you in your career? I think good networking is, is something that always pays off, um, even from joining the Mars Volta. I mean, that was, I got in that uh, mix because I was recommended. And, um, and I was in high school with uh, my friend, Ike, who was the keyboard player, he, I knew him from the LA scene, the band scene, and I was in high school with his little brother. So I'm in school, um, or I went to school with his brother. How do you behave in school? Are you a cool person? Are you a good bandmate to work with? All these things, four years down the line, when they're asking, they're asking for the, uh, the recommendation and you get the thumbs up from the people that know you, the people that play with you, the people that are, that are in your, um, in your network, basically. So you never know how people are going to turn up later in your life and um, creating a, a solid network is imperative and being someone that people want to work with, people want to hire, people can rely on, uh, they know you have a good work, work ethic and are um, easy and fun to work with as well. And the only way you can do that is to actually do it and have others watch you, right? So that they can recommend you. Exactly. You have to, you have to do the work to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you started playing bass way back at age 12. You got your dream instrument, finally, a Fender Precision Bass at age 15. For those who don't know, the precision means you actually have frets versus the upright basses that you had to kind of figure out where the notes were. So now Fender recently has honored you and your playing with a signature bass, an Eva Gardner bass. Uh, it's pretty cool, a signature precision bass with your name on it. Tell us how that business deal came to be and, and what that's meant to you in your career to be able to create an instrument that's got your name on it. Yeah, I mean, the, the Fender name has been a household name since before I was born. It was the instruments that um, literally my forefathers, you know, my father used. And um, it's, it's, a, it's just the greatest honor to have a signature model with them. And that turned out because... Um, again, it was all through, through connections and through relationships. And I was on a uh, rhythm section tour in Europe. It was me and Mark Schulman from the drummer from the pink band and the share band we played together. So we were doing a rhythm section tour, um, hired by Fender overseas. And we were at a big convention, a music convention in Germany. And I was, I was walking through the convention with the head of Fender Germany. And we were walking through the signature bass section and admiring all the wonderful signature bases. And he said to me, you should have one of these. And I'm thinking like, yeah, right. Sure. That would be, yeah, haha, great. You know, in my dreams kind of a thing, but yes, in my dreams. And he actually 
it, it actually ended up happening. He made it happening, happen. Um, but that was me being in the room and connecting and, um, and vibing with these people and just appreciating so much their product and, and just feeling such a sense of honor for being there. And, um, and, uh, and he had, he had the idea and it happened. So cool. You showed up, you made an impression that left a mark with someone who could help you get what you wanted to have, or maybe even never considered before. I mean, that's probably something that was the furthest thing from your mind as you were even walking the show that day. Yeah. I was just admiring. I was like, Oh my gosh, Roger Waters, what a cool bass he has, you know, from Pink Floyd and admiring all these incredible players and their instruments. We'll be back for the second half right after this. Hi, this is Bill Gertine. I've been training the ticket sales departments of sports and entertainment for almost 20 years. And I love what I do. But everywhere I went, the story was always the same. We loved what you did. You got us fired up. But after a while, we kind of lost the spark and we went back to the same old, same old. Well, not anymore. ISBI 360 is the first and only digital training network created exclusively for the specific long-term career needs of sports and entertainment professionals. Our seven different unique certification programs include the fundamentals of success in the industry, like ticket sales, sponsorships, social media, customer service, and leadership, all trained by industry experts like Brett Zelaski, Debbie Nolan, Misha Sher, and Seth Rabinowitz. ISBI 360 uses a unique four-stage learning process, including cutting-edge micro-learning videos, live recorded role plays, live coaching from industry experts, and an ongoing reinforcement program to make sure the learning sticks and forms the habits that your people need to grow and excel faster. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Check out what's different about ISBI 360 today. Well, we talked earlier about you being a singer-songwriter. I got the chance to hear you perform a segment of your new music. Uh, it was in a live Zoom session just a couple of weeks ago. It's truly remarkable. Just enjoyed hearing that myself. How different is the business of Eva Gardner, singer-songwriter, from the business of Eva Gardner, professional touring bass player? And, and are there differences in approaching each one of those? I, I mean, both of them are me, right, as a person and as a performer. And um, as artists, we, ha we have to be entrepreneurs anyway, right? We have to sell ourselves to an extent. And, and that means all the things that we were talking about prior, um, about being a good um, being a good teammate, basically. And so uh, this is just another extension of who I am. And it's the creative side. You know, a lot of times I get hired as what's called a hired gun. Literally, like someone who comes on tour and say for an artist like Pink or with Cher or Gwen Stefani, mm -hmm. I get hired to do a job, which is support the artist on stage. And I'm performing their music and I'm in a supportive role. Um, and just another facet of that is what about the creative side? This is me creating my own music and writing. I've been writing since I was a teenager, basically since I started um, playing music. And I've also loved the collaborative thing. It's being in a room with other musicians and being in a band and being a, t uh, a team in that way, a collaborative, creative team. And um, yeah, and then as I was on tour, I was on tour for so long, um, you know, two, one, two years, almost three years at a time, lots of days off. 
um, in hotel rooms. So I started traveling with a recording rig, like a laptop and a, a way to just start recording. And I just started recording my own music on days off, time off. And um, that turned into um, uh, albums, an album, and now another one. That's great. Well, there have been a lot of people creating in this off time, and I know that yes. uh, we're going to see in the, probably in the next couple of years uh, just a, a wave of new music that we probably would never have heard otherwise. So it's pretty mm -hmm. cool that you've been able to do that. So you have, you've got a, a, a unique instrument for a female. Uh, it's been more and more prevalent now, but boy, back when you started, there weren't a whole lot of female bass players going around there. It, as you got better and more proficient, some bands look for a certain uh, appeal on stage. They want to have somebody who looks good on stage and you look good on stage. How much of that do you think has played into the career that you put together? And, and do you think that that's overemphasized sometimes as people put bands together? Um, I think it depends um, on the band. It depends on the artist. I mean, it's um, it has been... Uh, it's been a good and bad thing that I stand out, right? Um, there have been situations where I have been up for a band and I didn't get the job because I was a female and the other female on stage didn't want the competition, oh. sadly, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, so there's that, but there's also the, the other side of it where it's a good thing to stand out because if you stand out and you kick butt at what you do, um, all those things, it just makes for for um the full package really and um and i've been fortunate that i've been i'm able to work with some incredible artists that that are supportive of their female counterparts and i think that's what it's all about when you advise others to do what you have done perhaps on those tours that you had done with fender and some of the others they come up and they ask your advice and perhaps you're on a panel that they may ask that and they may ask about your look because you do stand out in a very positive way do you think that some players uh, have purposely tried to tamp down who they are so that they can be more in the background? Because often a bass player will be more of a, a, a background instrument. Mm -hmm. Again, I think it's, it's depend on, depends on the situation that you're in. Uh, if you are in a, a collaborative group um, where you're all equal and you're all sharing in, in um the writing and the creative side, you a lot of times you have more more room to just be more, I don't know, out, outrageous or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Sometimes when you're in the hired gun situation, um, you need to be aware of the situation you're working in, right? right. And who's the not, star and who's not the star, I suppose. Exactly, and it's about respecting those boundaries. And um, but still, of course, like you, you have to remain. <laughs> Well, well kempt and and your hygiene has to be good and, sure. and well dressed and and all those things of course, um, but there's respecting um, respecting the the roles that you're playing. Right. Well, we're now in firmly entrenched in the download era of music versus the vinyl era and CD era and all the others where you actually could hold it in your hand. How much more important now are live performances to musicians like yourself in the overall revenue stream versus what people used to count on in CD sales, et cetera? If you look at ticket prices in the last several years, you'll, you'll see directly how that's been affected. Um, gone are the days when you can go to show at an arena for $30, right? 
Um, they're now closer to those larger ticket prices. You can pay over a couple hundred dollars for, for a ticket, $300 for general admission. It's just um, those ticket prices are quite significant now, comparatively speaking. But like you said, they're not making money on record sales. So now the revenue is dependent upon um, ticket sales and merchandising um, and those types of things. Which really kind of, made it doubly difficult here over the last 12 months, I'm sure. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah, you couldn't count on CD sales in a pandemic, at least this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Can't really well, count on any, any sales. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little about as we come out of this. Festivals, as we mentioned earlier, are potentially coming back, which is great. There's lots of talk, a lot of positivity about what may come on the horizon. We're not sure just yet. There's still some things that need to be played out. It's still up in the air. What are festivals going to look like this summer and in the foreseeable future, in your opinion? That's a great question. I, I know there's a lot of talk about logistics. How are they going to work out um, the audiences? Like, do you group all the vaccinated people in one area together and those that aren't in the, in, in the back or how, and see, how's, how's it going to work? How is it logistically? What does the backstage look like? Is there going to be a green room? Uh, can the artist hang out backstage? What does that look like? So there's a lot of things that are in consideration right now. Also, the travel arrangements. Um, do you fly in three days ahead of time to quarantine before the festival? Who's going to pay for those hotels? It's it's a lot of there's a lot of things I think that are uh, being worked out right now and talked about. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like in, until it happens, but um, it would be great to see it come through at some point. Um, sure. Hopefully this year. I mean, like we said, there's stuff on the books happening um, for summer, fall, but whether it happens, we'll see. Would you expect that people would see a corresponding bump in ticket prices to be able to accommodate all the things now that need to be purchased in addition to all the others that used to have to happen? It would make sense. And we're seeing that across the board and in, in so many other fields as well. Um, so many things, the, the prices have gone up because of this whole, this whole situation. And um, I would say it would be fair to expect the same in music and music sure. festivals. Well, certainly the, the pandemic has been the number one storyline. But are there any other trends or storylines in entertainment that you're watching in particular that uh, perhaps is not being discussed as much? You think that will become more important sooner than later? I'm seeing a lot about the N NFTs. Yes. Um, Tell us about your in involvement with non-fungible tokens and, and where you see that happening in music. I, I mean, I don't personally have any specific involvement yet, but I think it's an interesting concept. And I've been hearing a lot of talk about um, people that are creating um, some sort of piece of art, whether it be a piece of music or a certain session or a piece of artwork or whatever it is, um, and and selling that, yeah, as a, as a genuine... NFT that only one person owns and can be can be bought and sold. And uh, I think it's, um, it's an interesting concept. Interesting. So have you talked about it yourself with other musicians? Or do you know anyone that's considering that as a musician doing NFTs? Not personally, but I did. I was in a room on Clubhouse yesterday. And I heard some some artists talking, talking about creating one. And I'm just I'm just listening to the chatter right now. I haven't been involved personally, but um, just keeping my ear to the ground. Very cool. 
Well, it's, it's so interesting what's happening with that. And, and I think you'll see a whole lot more of it, but it, it's one of those things. I think all of us are wondering when the other shoe is going to drop. It's just so popular now and so high up in terms of the, the talk factor. Uh, it'd be fascinating to see where things go with music because this is the first I'd heard of it being in, involved in, in a music thing, certainly sports mm-hmm. and, and art pieces. And certainly in the arts, we should have expected that music would follow suit. When you think of an artist or an entertainment company or perhaps even a venue that you think is doing things right at this time in our history, who do you really look to? Who comes to mind for you in that genre? Um, I can't say offhand because I haven't been involved with any, I haven't played a show. I haven't um, been part of any of the live scene or any venues in particular. Um so I can't say, um, I know there's mention of, of the Austin, um, the Austin clan, the. Yes. The 30 venues that all came together exactly to be able to wrote kind of, they wrote a manifesto of sorts to let their fans know that yes, Texas is hundred percent open, but here's what we're going to do to keep you safe. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And I think that's respectable and, um, it's not all about, making all the money back right now immediately as fast as we can. It's, it's at the end of the day, it's also about the health and safety of, of everyone involved. And I think that's an important, um, still an important point. Yeah. There's a lot of unknowns still. There sure are. What do you think this moment in time has given entertainment an opportunity to do or reflect on, or perhaps do a little differently that may never come again. Is there a, a maybe a window here to change or improve something right now that you see? Um, I definitely have seen a, a, a lot of people um, creating in a different way, um, where they don't all have to be in the same room anymore. Um, I've been part of some songwriting camps where I was with uh, in a room of four people, and and three of them were in in Scandinavia and, <laughs> and I'm here in the States and, um, using technology in a way that, um, is just really skyrocketed in a, in a creative, in a creative sense. And just, um, people are just ad- adapting and, um, and, uh, thriving in a different way. Cool. Well, there's, there's several questions that I want to ask you as we wrap up. These are kind of fun, fill in the blank sorts of things. So just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. If you're ready, we'll go. I'm ready. All right. Your favorite binge watch during the pandemic. Hmm. I have to think about this. Uh, a show called the, an Australian show called the offspring. (laughs) Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, the board game you pulled out in 2020 that you never thought you'd see the light of day again. I did not pull out any board games. All right. That's, a, that's <laughs> I an answer. I by myself a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a, 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 a product of the pandemic for sure. Well, yeah. the next one then works. The sit-down restaurant you actually ordered from most on Grubhub or any of those takeout places. The sit-down restaurant, I would say... Um, hmm, Tender greens. Ah, okay. The finest stage you have ever played on in the world. Wembley Stadium. Oh, really? When whose show? May I ask? That was a pink show. Wow. That must mm-hmm. have been spectacular. It was a pinnacle. 
Wow, that's great. The song you never hope to play again as long as you live. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Wild thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's fun. The go-to instrument that you hope never, ever breaks that you will hold on to as long as you possibly can. Yes, uh, my Fender Precisions. Ah, makes sense. I've got the white one right back there. That's one. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, there's some that just feel so good. It, it, if you didn't have it, you feel lost without it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Cool. Favorite comedian or comedian? Mm, Dave Chappelle. Okay. Biggest challenge you're going to have to overcome in the next six months? Mm, promoting my record. Oh, good. That's a, and that's a good personal goal thing to have. Mm -hmm. And last one, one bold prediction for entertainment going forward. Mm, it will be bigger and better than ever. See, that's so good. I love that positivity. Eva Gardner, thanks so much for taking time here on The Crowdmakers. If you enjoyed the program, please like us, share us with those you know, and hit subscribe on the podcast, and we'll let you know when another new episode is dropped. Your positive comments will help keep the Crowdmakers on the air. We'd be grateful for your five-star review. Got someone you'd like to hear as a guest on the Crowdmakers? Let us know, and we'll do our best to reach out to them. Drop us a note at info at ISBI360.com. That's info at ISBI360.com. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the first and only digital training network for sports and entertainment professionals. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Our chief engineer of the Crowdmakers is Ken Marinelli. Sean Quinn is our director of operations. Mark Yazowitz is the digital platform guru. And the executive producer of The Crowdmakers is Doug Quinn. I'm Bill Gertine. Until next time, thanks for listening, and so long for now. This is The Crowdmakers on the C-Suite Radio Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.